0: The following is a conversation with Dr. Peter you. Peter is the MAE Excellence Term Professor and Associate Chair in the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at the University of Florida. For almost three decades, Peter has taught experimental solid mechanics courses and has had a varied career in stress analysis research, composite materials, and micro aerial vehicles, which were basically drones before they were cool. In this episode of the podcast, we talk about his involvement with Archer Aviation, a California-based startup company building electrically-powered hybrid aircraft. We also touch on his work in underwater surveying using drone technology. And along the way, Peter shares his thoughts on what has made him successful and offers insights to those that may want to walk the same path. And now, a conversation with Dr. Peter Ife. So talk to me about Archer Aerospace. I know very little about it, but I've heard a thing. So what could you tell me about that?
1: Okay, so uh, really interesting. It's one of the most fascinating Kind of career, like research paths that I've been on. So Archer Aviation right now is a is a company located in the Silicon Valley, and they produce these things called electric vertical takeoff and landing, uh, urban mobility, flying machines, kind of like flying cars almost. And the idea is that uh, you know we have too much ground transportation, and highways are clogged. So if you had to get from Santa Monica to LAX, it's only about 17 miles. But on an average day, it would take you an hour and a half. And if you got an Uber, it could be hundreds of dollars. And so the idea is to have uh, various locations within a city where you can take a flying machine from that location to LAX. It would be like a 12-minute flight. And uh, they've done market studies. NASA's done tons of market studies that say... You know, if you charge somebody $70 for a flight, it would be cheaper than an Uber. Um, how many people would take it? And then how profitable would it be? And so, and they found out like LAX alone would be a $10 billion a year industry if once it's built out properly. And so this could be duplicated all over the place. So the vehicles that they're building would be like a four-passenger car, flying car or, you know, aircraft you know, you would pick it up somewhere on the rooftop of some building or some somewhere, and then fly in. Uh, in the future, they'll be largely autonomous; they wouldn't even have a pilot. Uh, and so, Archer Aviation is in that mode. They're all electric, so they essentially the Archer version has twelve rotors, uh, and when it's hovering, all twelve rotors are pointing to the sky, and then as it transitions. It has a wing also, so as it transitions forward, the front rotors tilt forward, and then it transitions into a standard airplane. And then the other rotors kind of just go uh, silent, or they stop rotating, and they feather with the air to minimize drag. So it's a fairly simple kind of concept. Um, And so early on... I was I was involved with this company called Archer, and it started with uh, two entrepreneurs, graduates from University of Florida, in finance, and they had just sold a business in Manhattan. They're are literally just two. Uh, they went to they graduated. One graduated in 2009, the other one in 2012. So they're you know they're they're not old. They're young professionals that first worked at Goldman Sachs. They met each other. Then they started an incubator program, a company called Vettery, Three employees or four employees to start with. In five years in Manhattan, across from Peloton, that's where their headquarters were and still are, um, they grew to a company of 350 employees. Then they sold it for $110 million. So by the time they paid back investors and all that kind of stuff, they were sitting on some funding. Uh, they wanted to start a new company. It's kind of the Elon Musk model with PayPal and transitioning to technology. And so this is was a was a one of the topics they were really interested in. So they went to like the AIAA meetings. Non-engineers uh, going into uh, meetings like the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics meeting specifically symposiums on eVTOLs. And one of my students was there uh, and they met in the hall. They go, "Oh, you're from University of Florida." Yeah, so are we. And they're just, they're just talking. And so my student Moses Devocker somehow convinced him that he could do a little design work for them. And so they kept in touch uh, through email for a while. And then Moses like, "Doctor, if you, I need your help on this." I was like, "Cool." what do you need? Well, they want to do some prototyping and stuff. I said, that's my lab set up for that. We do really well at that.
0: Yeah. I was curious, like where your involvement comes in. Yeah. So this makes sense.
1: And so we just had a phone call and they're just like, wow, this is, you could do that. Yeah. We could build prototypes for you. How about design work? Yeah. I, I Literally designed and built hundreds of aircraft. And so, you know, small micro vehicles and unmanned aircraft. And so they said, well, what if I gave you 40K for four months? Would you do that? I said, sure. And you know what? We set up a simple contract with no intellectual property, you know, talk. What was the deliverable of that? The the deliverable was the design of a prototype, small prototype, like maybe three foot by three foot kind of size prototype uh, that had ducted fans because they were obsessed with ducted fans. They thought, this is the way to go. And at we kind of knew it wasn't, but, you know, they're going to pay us to do something, right? And so, well, after a couple of months working on this, they fell in love with the design I had. They dumped two other schools that they were working with, George Tech being one of them. And they said, oh, we're all in at the University of Florida, and that's awesome because we're your Florida graduates, and we bleed orange and blue, and that was great. So that contract, then we used the same agreement. They gave us another 100K for another prototype, then more and more. And then within a year of meeting them, we were flight testing a 250-pound, 12-ducted fan, 10 foot by 10 foot. It would, ju- it, w- it would just barely fit in the room we're talking in right now, right? And we flight tested it. Uh, we, we got it to hover and kind of cruise around a ball field. Um it's actually not a ball field, but a, the University of Florida Plant Science and Research Center down at Citro where they have like a thousand plus acres we can fly on. And so it was safe to do it there. Um, and they showed the results and the prototypes and stuff to Mark Laurie, who's the CEO of Walmart e commerce, a good friend of theirs. And so he kicked in about $8 million, And then with the money they had, uh, saved up, you know, from their selling of veterinary they formed a company in January of 2020. And the company was called Archer Aviation, named after my lab off of Archer Road, because that's where we're building the prototype. They have one, two, three PhD students that worked on the project. Moses DeVocker, um, Rich O'Donnell, and then Ben Greek. Uh, ben Greek was one of David Hahn's PhD students. And then... Andrew Bingler, who was a master's student uh, under I think Cameron Musceni at some point, but was working at another place, and then we kind of poached him away from that, and then a couple undergrads, uh, Jack Elder, and then Caleb Dinkle, and that worked on this project. But I had a whole team working on this. That was that was maybe a quarter of the team, but they they got they got some good ones. And fast forward a year later, January 2021 they had raised a billion dollars with a B from people like A-Rod and J-Lo and, you know, just investors from all over the place. Um, in 2021, uh, they went on the New York Stock Exchange with a SPAC called Atlas Crest. Um, and But uh, meanwhile, after we stopped building prototypes for them, we would, uh, we'd transition to research. So then myself, Dr. U'Kiley, and and his amazing uh, facility, his anechoic chamber facility, anechoic wind tunnel facility. And then uh, Dr. Miller, you know, we we worked. And so we were doing research for them since, uh, for the last two years. And in September, Of last year, 2021, they went solo on the New York Stock Exchange. And I would have been there, but I I, I was still recovering from a little physical setback I had. Two of those students actually were on the stage ringing the bell. And I would have been ringing the bell, too, on the New York Stock Exchange. And so uh, now in November, uh, we dedicated a building on our campus in the solar park that they donated money to. Along with Brian Levine, another investor that was really good friends with uh, Adam Goldstein and uh, Brett Adcock. Those are the two uh, UF graduates who formed this company. And so, yeah, by uh, the last summer, they already had a billion dollar order from United Airlines with another option for another half billion. And then uh, they've been flight testing the maker which is their prototype two-passenger vehicle. Um, they've been doing flight testing for a little bit less than a year, but they've already into transitioning it from hover to forward flight. And then next week, they're going to unveil their production model called the Midnight, and it's a four-passenger, one pilot. Until everything is certified and until there's the infrastructure they're still not going to have autonomous vehicles. So conservatively, put a pilot in it, then all you have to do is get your you know, certification for that aircraft instead of going through all the autonomous certification required. And so, yeah. So next week's the big unveil. Uh, I'm going to be there. Uh, f- they're going to do flight testing of the maker, the smaller version, and then unveil
0: the midnight. Um, it's really exciting. Is, is that model... The vision for, like, the, not autonomous, but basically the electric uh, EV tall taxis that move you from LAX to wherever. Yeah. Okay, so that's the one. This is
1: the one. And they're planning in 2025 to build 250 of them. And then 2026, a 600. And then so they're going to ramp up and start producing these.
0: Okay, so So, if you had to look back in the time that you spent in that development, you know, what was the, what was the Pete, if you, Magic, that you were able to bring to bear to make this obviously very successful because when you talk about raising funds with the number starts with B, that's pretty impressive. So, you know, so what do you think? So
1: I, I, I have zero skills when it comes to raising funds. I'll tell you that now, but, um, the, the facilities that we had and the type of work we had done in the past and the team we had, you know, we were able to crank out prototypes. And honestly, if you, if you go to other professors that do this kind of stuff around the the world, they wouldn't. Even, they don't mess with this kind of stuff. I like to get my hands dirty. Uh, you know, I think I've built some incredibly unique vehicles in my in my lifetime, like the hydrofoil uh, that we built, the unmanned hydrofoil, and and all through the micro air vehicle days, and then building unmanned aircraft systems for wildlife natural resource applications. You know, counting estimating bird populations in the Everglades and things like that, it kind of transform you know, some of these fields. Um, and so I, I just love getting my hands dirty and, you know, building stuff. And I'm a little different from most professors. You know, I'm just not all about, you know, getting funds and writing grants and doing a lot of math. You know, I just, I, I, I like to give the students real-world experience in my lab.
0: And I also like doing it, too. Your background is not in aerospace, though. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do you how do you trace the connective path between, you know, the things that you studied in school and Mm -hmm. the research you did to sort of where you are right now? Like everyone has a career evolution. And like, how do you link those points in time together?
1: The way I like to operate is have almost no... Firewall between my personal life and my personal hobbies, and what I do here at school. So I think all of us are a product of our upbringing, a product of all the things that we built, a product of all the successes and failures. I, I could tell you that I remember once I was, I wanted a fiberglass a surfboard on my own. It was an absolute failure, and I built a wood redwood strip canoe. I really choked on the fiberglass on that. But it really, like, I learned what not to do. I learned, but I got my hands dirty, and it made me go in the right direction. <clears throat> so, plus I love water sports, and, you know, I've done a lot of work with uh, actually pretty good innovations when it comes to things like building windsurfing fins or windsurfing booms or boards. And you know, I, I like to build things and then ride them or build them and then fly them. It's much more satisfying than buying something and then doing it. I've competed on the national level in windsurfing on my own fins and been competitive. One year I got sixth place at the U.S. Nationals overall in course racing. And I sold, I, I gave a windsurfing fin to Antoine Albeau in 2010. And he won the world championships on my fin. With, the, with 70 competitors on the starting line, he won eight out of the 15 races and horizoned the, the fleet on a couple races on my fin. And that's like, cool. Didn't make much money doing this. I didn't really want to form a business because windsurfing was kind of dying anyway. So it would have been a dead business, but just the satisfaction was all I cared about. And so I, I built those fins out of my garage. I literally had a facility in my garage and I built two fins a week for two years, a couple hundred fins, sold maybe half of them in Europe and South America, that's where the market was, gave away more than half of them to anybody who wanted them, basically. I'm a terrible businessman. But it's the fun of building stuff and, and seeing people succeed or, or do well on the things you build is, is just fascinating. And so that part of my, like, that part of me, and I build my own furniture. I do, I love that part of it. And so I bring that in, you know, to the, to the lab. And my students get those skills, too. And they're very valuable skills when you get to industry, extremely valuable skills. So I think I prepare the students for the workforce in this particular sector as well as anybody. And uh, that gives me great satisfaction. Uh, Yeah, it's not traditional kind of the way you do things. But, you know, after working with Archer Aviation and, and them pumping about, you know, one and a half million dollars into the university in a 3-year period donated a building on our campus that was dedicated in November. You know, that's that's pretty cool. So it was, and it was definitely not the traditional path to success for that, but it was it was a satisfying and and students benefited from it. You know, they they got the skills. They're working now at Archer Aviation and other
0: places that, you know, that utilize those. Is your involvement with that company or project done now, or do you have like a continuing role?
1: So we, we we're transitioned from building prototypes to doing research about two years ago. And then the research was on aeroacoustics of propeller blades, rotors. And so one of the things that's going to make or break this industry is how loud these vehicles are. If the vehicle is louder than a semi passing by, then it's going to be too loud. So traditional helicopters, you know, it's it's an amazing technology, but there's two things that hold back the helicopters from being ubiquitous. I and mean, there's 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 a reason you don't see a lot of helicopters flying around. One is noise, They're incredibly loud because the Mach tip numbers are, are you know it's it's near Mach one for the tip rotors and they're loud and they're huge. And so that's awful. And then they're, they have numerous single points of failure on a helicopter. So they have to be inspected regularly. Like a strands helicopter may cost $10 million to purchase, but over the 30-year lifespan of that vehicle, you're talking about over $100 million. Because of inspection, because of what fuel costs, pilot costs, and so forth and so on, it's just not, you can't build an industry based on that. Yeah, you can fly people around Manhattan for sightseeing here and there, and they're going to pay big bucks to do it. But for a passenger getting a flight from point A to point B on a routine basis, not going to happen. Because it's, they're, first of all, they're, they're dangerous compared to uh, what the EV tall industry will be. And they're loud. They're fairly efficient, though. I mean, you could run them for 100 miles without refueling, or, or uh, hundreds of miles without refueling, right? But, uh, you know, operating those in the city is just not going to happen. And EV eVTOL, on the other hand, has much smaller rotors and electric motors. So it's all electric, no pollution, uh, all electric motors. They're quiet. Rotors are small. So you'll you'll have an order of magnitude lower audible sound from an EV talk. So you'll be able to operate in the city. And then the the Archer version, for instance, has 12 rotors. So if any one or any two of those rotors, you know, fries or the motors stop working, you're fine. You know, it doesn't have a single point of failure. So the Archer vehicle has zero single points of failure on the whole vehicle. And so that's a a good thing. And then what you sacrifice is efficiency. You know, the energy density of fuel compared to batteries are, again, an order of magnitude plus. And so what you lack is range. The Bottom line, the range is not a big deal. If you're going to LAX and back from Santa Monica, you know, it's not a big deal. You just go there, come back, recharge. Couple hours later, go back, come back. So, yeah. So it's it's a uh, you lack efficiency, but you gain in you know uh, safety, and then
0: uh, and then the noise is okay. So uh, competing with Uber, like Uber will go from generic point A to generic point B. Would there be a bus station for the Archer? Uh, aviation, you know, or would it just like take you and drop you off in your neighborhood, which seems a little ridiculous? No,
1: like Ray it, Jetsons. It will be. It will be exactly what you said. There'll be like a bus station, yeah. and it, it. Many of them may be on rooftops, or you know what used to be a ball field, or you know places like that, or. You know I've seen renditions of what Archer wants to do in Manhattan, and it's basically. Uh, building like a floating dock that goes out into the Hudson and it lands on that, you know, with the little bullseyes for landing the, the vehicles. And, and so, yeah, you may have to take an Uber from your house to the that, and it may take five minutes, 10 minutes, and then take a 15-minute, 20-minute uh, flight to LAX. is still going to be cheaper and, you know, quicker than taking an Uber the whole way. And if you happen to live in the city where you're there, you just walk to it and go. And so, yeah, I think the business models actually pretty sound. Um, and it's a competitive space because of that. So there are multiple companies that are. And so uh, I would say there's like four hardcore, maybe more uh, companies now. And Archer's just about caught up with them in about a two-year period. I think it's going to be a startup that's going to win because the other companies are kind of risk averse, you know. If uh, uh, and the and the Aurora vehicle by Boeing actually crashed and the Boeing stock took a little hit, so you know, they want to de-risk themselves when it comes to these kind of things.
0: What's the big problem? You know, not big problem with everything, but uh, like, what's the biggest challenge in that industry right now? That you know, why aren't people instantly successful? There's got to be some Problem that's difficult to solve. That eventually the market leader will solve it.
1: Yeah. So energy density is a huge deal. I mean, batteries are batteries, and they're limited in terms of uh, watt hours per kilogram. And so batteries are heavy, and you have to take passengers too. And so there's that portion of it that's always a challenge. So people complain about the range of an electric car. Imagine. That is, like, magnified immensely if you're trying to fly, right? And so that's one of the big challenges. Um, and so Archer is, is building their vehicle on today's batteries, not the batteries that may exist five years from now. And other companies as well, you know, we're going to build these designs, and then when the new batteries come out, this will be a viable technology. That's not something that Archer is doing. They're building their technology on what's what's allowed, what exists today. And then the rest is gravy. You know, the better batteries come out, let's swap them out, and then you'll have that much more range. The functionality of these things is challenging because you have a vehicle that acts like a helicopter and then it transitions and acts like an airplane. And so the control laws now are significantly more challenging. I mean, it's one thing to build a drone that, you know, hovers around, but then to transition to where you're now on wing-borne flight where the wings are taking on most of the load and not only the propellers. And so the control laws are challenging. And then obviously uh, building a vehicle that the batteries are heavy, so you have to save weight everywhere else. So you have to use the most advanced composites and so forth uh, to make them lightweight enough. To where you can actually take on passengers.
0: Yeah, I, get, I hadn't really thought about that. Unlike a traditional aircraft that literally burns its fuel, becomes you know lighter as it goes. The battery, the battery mass in an electric aircraft just basically stays nominally you know? the same. Yeah, you know, right? the, the electrons that you you get rid of, they don't really weigh anything. So you know your your mass is your mass. Yeah, and the
1: reason all the vehicles, well, not all. There are some that are mostly just helicopter types, like multi rotor vehicles. The reason they have wings is because, you know, when you're in hover, your rotors and your motors are carrying 100% of your load. When you're transitioned to where your wing-borne flight, the motors are producing uh, a certain amount of thrust. And so it, it then comes to a, you know, the thrust-to-weight ratio. And, and typically these vehicles are somewhere between 5 and 10. So if it's 10, just a round number, that means your your motors are only producing ten percent of the thrust that they would be if they were in hover. So you get tremendous energy savings when you transition to to forward flight.
0: Oh, so there's like a high burn, like a high energy burn rate when you're taking off and landing. But then if you can cruise, basically the the amount of energy you use is reduced because the wings are taking a lot of the right. You know, okay. And so, uh.
1: Uh, many of the government organizations, like NASA and the FAA, and so forth, they set kind of a requirement. If you're going to be in this game, you have to be able to uh, you, you have to show that you can hover for two minutes, or tr- takes two minutes to go into transition to forward flight. Then, at the end of the flight, you need two minutes to hover again, and then they require like. I don't remember the exact number, but I think it's a five minute hover just in case there's somebody over your parking space and you have to wait till they move. And then you have to have another uh, allotment for loitering for X amount of time. So, and then what's left over is your range. Okay. You know, what's left over is a forward flight. And so most of the range quotes, they include all those hovers before and after, and then the safety hover and all this kind of stuff, then the range. So the, the range, like for the Archer vehicle is like 50 to 60 miles right now. And uh, I think Joby's is a little more like 70. And so Joby's vehicle has six rotors instead of 12. And so they're going to be a little more efficient in hover for sure. And they're, um, They're also going to be louder, but they're going to be less safe, too. So I think the Joby vehicle with six rotors, by definition, they're going to be a little louder because the rotors are bigger. Um, They're also less safe because they have now one of the motors goes. That's a a larger percentage of the motors that keep you afloat. Uh, But because of larger rotors, they'll be more efficient. And so they're playing a little of the efficiency game, and I think Archer is playing the... The safety and noise game. And I think
0: that's going to win out in the long run, just my feeling. So, you're talking about flying in the air. Uh, I'm also curious about talking about flying in the water. And so, you have done things with wings underwater. And for people who don't know, uh, how do you fly underwater? Okay. So,
1: I, you know, this is one of those things where my hobbies crossed over with. Uh, the things that I do in my lab. So, I've been doing working on drones for a long time. And so, we're pretty good at taking an autopilot, putting on a unique vehicle, and getting it to fly. So, at the time, uh, this was going back to 2017. Uh, at the time, I was building uh, hydrofoils for my windsurfer. So, basically, a, a hydrofoil that I put in the fin box of my windsurfer. And uh, essentially, you're not really flying. You're still on the water, but the foil itself produces lift, which then lifts the board out of the water. So you're elevated by, you know, a couple feet, and uh, then all of a sudden the sensation becomes amazing. You don't hear the waves and splashing anymore. It's like somebody turned off the volume completely, and you're just like gliding along, and you don't know, bouncing on the waves. You're just knifing through everything. And so I was building my own hydrofoils for that and playing around on a local lake. And then it's time for me to teach capstone senior design. And I said, well, what if we took a hydrofoil and made an unmanned vehicle like that? So an unmanned hydrofoil vehicle. So we built a 150 pound, after a, a, a semester of design work and then the design realization, uh, we built two hundred fifty 150 pound. Autonomous hydrofoils, unmanned hydrofoils, and tested it out and stuff. So I really got excited about this, and then, then I was invited to work uh, in this uh, moonshot that our university sponsored on uh, coastal solutions, like for things like red tide uh, and harmful algal bloom. And so forth. And so I was invited to participate in that because they they thought this hydrofoil would be a cool way to collect water or something. And I thought about it. I said, Yeah, I don't know. I'm not too crazy about the idea. But I got another idea. And the other idea was to collect water samples with drones. And so we just built a drone that lowered a little device, a little vessel down to the water, and then could um, sample or take on up to a couple liters of water which then flies back to the ground station. And then we could take those water samples and then put them in the cooler and take them to test. And so what it does is it, it keeps you from getting into the water. So for near shore applications, it, let's say I wanted to test the water half a mile offshore. I'd have to find a boat ramp, a boat, multiple people, drive my boat out there, take samples, bring them back. Instead, with this system, I could just park on the side of the road, send my drone out there, bring it back, have the water sample in five minutes, 10 minutes, take it to the lab. And so we could test like water samples all over the place in this area, numerous samples, like dozens of samples in an afternoon.
0: It's like the the Mars rover, except, you know, you send out your your unmanned vehicle to go collect samples in a place where you don't actually want to have people go to or, you know, cost prohibitive. So that's cool. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know about it. Yeah, that. it's really cool. So... Uh, so then towards the end of that project, um,
1: I started thinking, oh, that's cool. Um, the hydrofoil, what I really wanted to do with the hydrofoil was to do bathymetry, so underwater survey and mapping. And the idea of the hydrofoil is it, it, you can cruise along the water fairly quickly, and it doesn't bounce around in the waves. So your, your sensors, the sonar units, would be traversing just under the surface Uh, in a nice steady manner uh, unmanned and so but operating the hydrofoil was really challenging it's heavy it's hard to get into a car or couldn't put in a car a pickup truck Um, it was kind of not user friendly it's cool as it can be but not user friendly so then I had an aha moment I said well I'm going to build a little vessel like about a two foot by maybe one foot wide little hull, and put the sonar unit on it, then drag this thing on the pond with a tether that's connected to a drone. And so that's what I'm working on now. It's kind of one of my favorite topics I'm working on. And we call it the bathy drone, a drone that does bathymetry. The advantage of that is I don't even have to get in the water. I can start on the shore. I could, and the drone can carry, you know, 15 pounds and so I could lift this thing up, fly half a mile away if I wanted to, then put it in the water and then start a raster pattern back and forth, back and forth with a sonar unit on it and uh, map out the contours of, the, of that waterway. And so we've been able to do this like 10 acres in one battery pack with like near survey grade uh, quality bathymetry. And so right now we're kind of upgrading our systems to get better GPS and so forth. But at the end of the day, we're going to be able to develop a system where let's say I wanted to do a survey of the, of an inlet where, you know, the depths can change pretty rapid, Like after a hurricane, the inlets can be completely transformed and stuff. And you want to figure out where the shipping channels are now. I just go down and fly zip, 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 zip. Uh, You know, maybe it's 30 acres, so I have to use three battery packs. You know, a couple hours later, I can have like survey grade uh, type of bathymetry, underwater survey and mapping of that waterway uh, with accuracy that's not been done before in cloudy water. You know, there's optical methods. Like you could use green LIDAR if the water's transparent. Or you could use this fascinating technology— That's called fluid lensing. That actually allows you to see through the water without distortion, but it has to be clear water. And so, with this technology, any body of water, especially in inlets where you're not going to have, it's going to be turbid, you won't be able to see through the water. We just go there and zip, zip, zip. So, like things like surveying retention ponds to see if you know how much it's silted in. Uh, We could do, you don't even have to open the gate. You know, sometimes retention ponds are behind a fence. I could just pull up, fly this thing over the fence, down into the pond, go back and forth, raster back and forth with maybe 20-foot-wide transects. You know, if it's a three- or four-acre pond, be done with it and be able to calculate the water volume in that and then relate that to global coordinates because what we do is we put down survey marks, survey these marks, and then have those in the imagery And then we can uh, connect the imagery from outside, uh, which is traditional photogrammetry, with the water imagery, too. And so uh, I'm working on this with uh, our our new assistant professor, Jane Shin. Uh, She's doing a lot of the, the work with path planning and then trying to determine how to use the side scan information to really enhance what we can see underwater. So recognition of objects underwater and so forth.
0: So what you're talking about is very current. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, So this is... In development now. Yeah, this is not an established technology. This is something that's being actively worked on that, you know, maybe one day it will become, you know, the de facto standard. But as of right now, it's a really cool idea with a lot of promise. So we talked about the electric aircraft. We talked about underwater surveying. Is there anything else... Sort of on the horizon, or do you, do you have your plate pretty much full right now?
1: Yeah, my plate's not totally full. Um, so, um, you know, we're developing the technology, but we're also uh, looking for, uh, like, government agencies to fund some of the applications associated with that technology, like the Army Corps of Engineers, U.S. Geological Survey, the Florida Department of Environmental Protection, and the Water Management Districts. And so we've done a little pilot studies here and there to try to whet their appetites. And we're almost ready to kind of unveil kind of the next generation that will be survey grade. So there's a lot of work ahead of us. We've done a lot of cool stuff in the past. We have a patent that's already been filed on the Bathy drone. We're taking this thing to the next level for sure. And so that, that that's going to be a lot of work. Uh, I've got a great group of students and great colleagues that I'm working with on this. So...
0: It's going to be a success. How many students do you actually have in your lab right now, active?
1: Um, active right now, I have four PhD students and then one uh, PhD student at Archer Aviation. So he's kind of a part-time student, kind of chipping his way through the through the process. But I have four on campus. And then uh, I typically will team at least two undergrads for every PhD student I have. So I have maybe eight, roughly Undergrad students right now that work in my lab, um, and so yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a it's it's a nice group, but we may have to expand depending on you know the funding and so.
0: Is that a model that you discovered that worked for you in terms of having senior student researchers with you know uh, undergraduate assistants that they can delegate tasks to? Yeah. yeah,
1: because like any any kind of this might not be the case for modeling. But I'm an experimentalist. So there's a lot of mundane tasks in, in doing experimental work and building and so forth. And so, uh, but these mundane tasks are require skill. And so undergraduates do a lot of these things, build up their skills, and then get they, they get excited, and then they stick around for a PhD. So many of my PhD students started as undergrads in my lab. How do you
0: recruit? I don't. Okay, they just... You you have a you have enough I, of established research that people are like, hey, I want to work for P.D.F.U. Right, and so I don't do a lot of
1: recruiting. I I the students come to me, and a
0: lot of times I feel terrible. I wish I could hire more undergrads. Tell you the truth, what do you look for when, you know, when someone comes to you that wants to work for you? How do you know that like, oh, this is this is going to be a good fit? Enthusiasm. It's like. I'd say that's probably
1: the single trait that I look for. And then if they have some skills, it doesn't really matter what it is. If they're good at MATLAB. If they're good at CAD, so, you know, SOLIDWORKS. If they're good at, um, building things with their hands, if they've worked in a machine shop in the past. Those are all great to have. And then, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll team students with my PhD students based on their skills and what my PhD students need at the time. And so that's the way it works. And, and some students I work, lots of students I work directly with, obviously. And so my group expands and contracts depending on the demands we have
0: and the contracts we have. What is that signal where you say, this person is enthusiastic. You know, they, they've crossed my threshold where I think this will be a really good fit because it's an interesting thing. You know, it's, it's sort of your gut feel, uh, and your integrated experience over time where, you know, and then so that's why I'm curious sort of if you can describe that.
1: Yeah. I think a lot of it's gut feel, but look, when it comes down to it, I'm wrong so many times and I'm okay with that because for like an undergraduate student, they could act enthusiastic and then, you know, give them tasks and they never show up and they're gone. All right, so that was kind of a fail, but so what, you know? And that's fine, because it, what it meant to me is like, they weren't so excited to work here, they're going somewhere else. That's good. If they're not a fit in my lab, I don't want them there, right? And so, oh, you know, a lot of it is just you give students an opportunity and they have to prove themselves. And But you can't prove yourself if you've never given the opportunity, right? If you're, you've never been given that. So, yeah, I think a lot of students will come to me, I'll pair them with people, and, you know, if they have staying power, if if they're excited about what they're doing, if they're excited about what I'm doing, and personalities are there, you know, in terms of them getting along and things like that, then those are some of the students I work with for a long time, right? And so, it's not the best mode of operations, if you're an academic. And, uh, but it is something that uh, has worked and has not worked for me. It's really hard to recruit students from paper. You know, I can't look at a resume and tell at all whether or not they'll be a good fit. And so grad students a little easier, undergrads, not so much. I'm willing to fail uh, in order to to succeed. And I've always felt that way, Uh, you know, that anytime you try to build something that's never been built before, you know, there's probably a reason it's never been done because it's not easy. And so, yeah, if it works
0: out, that's awesome. It's so rewarding. And if it doesn't work out, you still learned a heck of a lot. So do you subscribe to, you know, perfect is the enemy of good? Oh, absolutely. So you, you what I hear from you is you build a lot of things, and every time you do something, you learn, and the next iteration gets better. Now, I've I built some absolutely beautiful things here at UF, absolutely stunningly
1: cool, but they're nothing compared to what industry will do with the idea when they take it. So you got to understand that universities, you can reach a certain level of manufacturing Perfection, which is far below what needs to be done when it takes the industry, and so I'm okay with that because I'm not an I'm not in industry. I build prototypes, and if you can build a prototype that people are say, "Wow, this is pretty cool," that's where you got to be. You know, there's going to be flaws in it here and there, and that's where the next iterations come. But I don't believe that you could build a perfect product without building prototypes without building testing and finding out deficiencies because it's hard for us to predict everything that could possibly go wrong with it and so you build it and you say oh i didn't ever thought about that you know okay but then the next iteration you're on top of it so my vision of what can be done and what can't be done revolves around my successes and failures because I've been down a path, you know, the failure path so often. And that makes me a better designer. How do you know when you fail? Uh, There's different levels of failure, right? And so there's subtle levels and then there's just flat out, wow, what was I thinking kind of level, right? And so I haven't, the more, the older I get, the more experience I have, I have less of those. Just flat out, what was
0: I thinking? So you, you can see the, the headlights before they get too close. Right. And so an, an example of that is the hydrofoil example.
1: I had a whole class, a, s- a whole senior class, like 120 students designing hydrofoils in groups of like six. And all the way through that semester, they thought I was just making this thing up like, yeah, it's going to work. There's a certain amount of trust you have in fly-by-water, fly-by-wire autonomous systems. And, you know, I said, it'll work. You know, and, and this is how it's going to work. So I, I, we ran some equations. We did the statics, first of all, to make sure that, you know, we have the right load balances and have the right CG in the position with the lift and the downforce on the tail and everything like that. So that you could do with static analysis what the equations for motion that we'd have to develop for the de- dynamics of that would have been way more than the students can handle, way more than I can handle. So there's this like, assumption like, well, they make surfboards that work like this, that steer based on weight shifting. We're making a similar thing that's, that's steered based on control surfaces underwater. And so, you know, I, I saw some things in the water sports industry that I said, okay, well, we could do that this way. We'll just do it a little different. And I would say 70% of the class from Capstone Senior Design, the design part of it, didn't believe that this was possible. They literally thought, Dr. Ife's blowing smoke. (laughs) It's like, what the heck? So it was funny. And then we got to the realization the next semester. We had 17 students and fully half of them thought, it's, this is just an exercise in futility. We're gonna build this thing, it's not gonna work. So we built the first version of it, took it out to the lake, Mike Griffiths Lake, throttled this thing up. After 20 minutes of tuning gains, this thing was flying around the lake. And just to see that the, the reaction from the students in real time, they're like, oh my goodness. Honestly, Dr. you, I didn't think this thing had a chance. I'm telling you, what do you mean? You know, you have to have some confidence in going through this. But, and I've seen all kinds of different vehicles work. And you just like, if you could figure out how they work, then you can put two and two together to get
0: four. Sometimes, and that's what we did. I guess to to kind of wrap things up, I'm sort of curious as a person. So you've been doing this for a while. You've had experiences, a lot of accrued wisdom. If somehow you could go back in time and have coffee with yourself just starting out without giving too much away, what would you, what knowledge would you impart in terms of um, the things that you've learned that you've found have been sort of instrumental to your success as well as um, good things to know? Mm.
1: That's a tough question. I wouldn't change a thing because I've been kind of riding the wave, so to speak, my whole life. Just having fun, doing what I like to do, riding the wave. And if if I, like, imparted wisdom on myself at that age, I wouldn't have been riding those waves. I'd have been just like, maybe my life would have been more structured. I could tell you one thing I would have done is I probably would have studied more in school because all the way through school, I had no ambitions of being a college professor. And so the subjects that I thought I had mastered at that point, not so much. And you don't really master this stuff till you teach it. it would have, I probably would've been better off studying a little more, you know, getting a little bit better grades, kind of thing, learning the subject matter as if I'm gonna teach it eventually. Probably would've done a little bit, I would've advised myself to do that, but then just
0: keep riding the wave. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please stay tuned for more insightful and interesting conversations with people in engineering, industry, and science.